Welcome to the Helpful Human Podcast. Today, we're gonna talk about design thinking. I am sitting down with Thomas Hallstrom. He is our business development professional at Helpful Human. Tom, how are you? Doing well, feeling very professional. Yeah, you look professional as one does in 21st century in Seattle, which is a flannel shirt and long floppy hair and an insouciant hair. Basically, devil may care. And I'm Mark Sandino. I'm the CEO of Helpful Human. This is a podcast exploring what it takes to be successful launching a new product. And Helpful Human is a digital product company. We help solve often complicated problems through the creation of native apps and web apps. And we have learned some tough lessons over the years about how to come at things. And so Tom and I are gonna talk about that a little bit today. Tom, do you want to uh, share with us our point of view? Yes, I think our point of view is that while we're not afraid to wade into complex technical problems, oftentimes it's wading into complex people problems. And when you understand that technology is rapidly changing, human nature doesn't necessarily keep up. That can often get in the way of successful and fun projects. I would say that unless what you're doing is a very mature effort, you have to start with some sort of design thinking effort instead of just waiting in and doing what a lot of us have wanted to do, customers and us alike, oh, we're just gonna build it. Throw some money at the problem and in two or three months, kapow, you've got this great solution. So Tom, it's instrumental that you're here on this podcast because you're relatively new to the idea of coming at the making of digital products from a design thinking approach. Why don't you give us a little bit of background where you've been most of your career? For about 15 years, I was the solution engineer or solution architect. Usually I think of that as if you're flying solo, you're the architect, you're wearing all the hats. If you're an engineer, you're more part of a team. For much of that, I was coming fresh out of being an English lit major, wondering how I found myself in tech and finding that the folks who were the CS majors at school really had it together. And then realizing that bringing thinking from a different field of study can really be beneficial, especially for technology. Did you try to rationalize this identity crisis when you first got into tech by writing a bunch of bad poetry and posting it around the office? (laughs) Romance tech poetry? I did really take pride in the precision and the language of my technical documentation, none of which anyone cared to read. After doing that for about 15 years, I kept bumping up against, if I just could have answered this question a little earlier, we could have saved a lot of effort. And oftentimes you're inheriting uninformed decisions. And nope, this is what we're going to do. This is the tech that we're going to build. And against expectations, I started swerving out of my lane into client development and saying, hey, can I actually engage with the clients on a more of a macro level and ask some questions that could help shape the downstream impact of what I'm building? And for the past five to six years, I have now veered completely out of that lane of solution architecture and have been dedicated to better understanding what clients want, finding new business and expanding existing business. I find that terms like solution architecture are classic word salad kind of terms. I know we all fall into this because it's almost like little binkies we throw into new customer relationships. Oh, well, we're going to provide a solutions architect or whatever. And it has a silky little edge and and the customer nuzzle it up against our face like, oh, I'm comforted by this word. (laughs) And it's just yet another businessy kind of thing. The only thing that we have found that delivers early value is going through some form of design thinking exercise. What I want to talk about today is what happens when you have a customer and they say, I have a budget, I have aspirations, and I'm excited. So 
emotion, outcomes in their mind, and they will to solve that problem. And an existing platform solution or existing point solution doesn't solve. We believe that you cannot just build the thing and see where the chips fall. Right. What have you learned about this already at being a helpful human? And you're three or four months in at this point. It is easy to get lost in the language, especially for somebody coming out of the humanities and bumping up against the hard science of technology. You can adopt language in an attempt to make complex ideas simple and graspable, and also just to talk like the others around you. They must have it together, so I'm gonna adopt these terms. Mark Twain said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. And what I love about what we're gonna talk about is design thinking, this compressed question answer prototyping takes away that word salad lingo bingo and you're using the language of the customer and you're agreeing on outcomes and objectives and how you're going to get there. I think it's important. Okay, let's talk about what the risk is in not doing this. What what happens if we don't get this right? What happens if we invest our time and energy collectively with the customer into something that doesn't actually solve the problem? So one of the things I asked you to do before this podcast was read this famous report that's bandied about IT. It's a little long in the tooth. It's the Standish Group's Chaos Report. What were one or two takeaways in summary that you got from that? Everyone is sad. <laughs> <laughs> IT fails all the time. There's there's a number of charts and slicing and dicing in there. The short version is one, you've got a lot of lost and misspent cash. Two, you've got missed opportunities. And three, you've got a lot of lost confidence that technology is going to be the solution to solve this. The numbers that they posted around Budgets going over, not by a little, by like 2x, 2.5x. The amount of features being delivered are less than 50%, I think. So let me just get really clear on that. We're talking about, hey, our budget for this was tens of millions of dollars. We ended up spending $150 million. And when it came down to it, when this project was actually in the hands of the users, it delivered less than 50% of the value that needed to be delivered. And it could have actually had a lot more features or a lot more functionality, but they're not needed. They didn't solve the real problem. Okay, what else? It was interesting that this, they considered small companies 100 million or higher. So you're talking about a pretty large group, but even 100 million to billion dollar companies, they're exhibiting the same characteristics I've seen in really small companies, teams of 10, 20, 50, 100 people, which is if you're not very crisp and clear at the front end on the problem that you're solving, you can go charging off into the great beyond with some kind of technology and the promise of what it's going to bring. And you're not actually solving problems. And even worse, in addition to the problem persisting, people are losing confidence and growing in frustration at the poor execution and the poor outcomes. How this happens is a bit of a mystery and a known quantity at the same time. Our experience has been, I am an aspirational leader. I have a budget. I want to digitally transform my business in some way. You're smart tech people, smart design people. You have strategy. Go and make this thing for me. Check back in when you have it done. Now, some listeners right now would say, well, I'd never do that. I'd make sure I was staying on top of it. That's not enough. If you as a stakeholder, whoever those stakeholders are, are not intimately acquainted with what the solution is going to be as fast as possible, and that solution is defined by solving the right problem 
even if it's the seed problem, the beginning problem, you're going to fail, at least in part. And that Standish report is something that describes that. It's like, hey, yeah, you can end up with something. It doesn't mean your product doesn't ship. It just means it doesn't really solve the problem. And that could be what people see when they use it. Hey, this is really hard to use. And where is this thing that is actually core to the real problem that needs to be solved for the largest demographic? It can be the hidden stuff which is maybe bad architecture and bad code, or it could just be a bad estimation of the support that was going to be needed to support the effort of rolling it out. So that's the conflict. Restated, if you do not pursue some sort of good process up front and you just start making a thing, the odds are you're going to fail. Regardless of your size, regardless of your clout and how mature you think your org is, those failings were striping across all sizes of companies. Right. To drive that point home, we have seen this for people who have micro budgets and people who have obscenely large budgets, projects that we have worked on. It's easy to critique something, to point out a problem. If we're gonna start talking about where we wanna go, Helpful Human and many other firms use a design thinking approach. What does that actually mean? So you're reading through Sprint by Google Ventures. You will eventually go through another book called Lean UX, which is complementary and additional layer of process. What's your understanding of what design thinking is? In a sentence, design thinking allows you to illuminate the right problem to fall in love with quickly. And what's your understanding of the tactical things that happen to illuminate, brightly illuminate the right problem to fall in love with? You get in a room with your client, your partners, and in a time boxed, in a compressed period of time, from Monday to Friday, you work through some exercises together to clearly identify specific outcomes and really separate the signal from the noise. What is it we're trying to accomplish? And that's something that at the end of that Standish Chaos Report, they said the key here is more frequent milestones and smaller components of a project. I think of it like Climbing. I watch probably once a year the Alex Honnold free solo. Where he's- I thought you were going to share with me your own anecdotal climbing experiences. When I was on Capitan, <laughs> I was hanging by two fingers and I thought to myself, self, <laughs> uh, I have a couple of brothers who are rock climbers, so they'll probably challenge me on this. But the idea of go a little ways, set your Python or cam something in the rock, create an anchor, get some agreement with the rock, move on a little further segment. And you're minimizing your risk as you go. Breaking large projects into smaller components helps ensure their success, helps ensure that you're both on the same page. Week-long, five-day exercise to make sure you're illuminating the right problem is taking measured steps and making sure you're in alignment and working through identifying the problem, clearing out the ones that you're not going to solve, finding that, coming up with some ideas of what it could look like, sketching things out. And by the end of this five-day stretch, you've actually built, and it could be, Pretty low fidelity could even be uh, on a whiteboard, but you've got some kind of prototype that you can look at and say, does this solve the problem? Does this get us there? It's okay to be wrong if you're wrong quick. And this is the whole lean startup mindset. Whether you're an enterprise or you're a startup, it's good news to get bad news on a Friday of one week into your project versus 30 days, six months in. 
oh no, this thing is a pretty thing. It does a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't solve our customer's problem. And that's the interesting tension here. Most folks can empathize. Yes, we've been part of projects. We've maybe contributed to projects. We've purchased time from people on projects where we charged off in the wrong direction. And man, three months later, this wasn't what we asked for. And yet when you say, can we get the decision makers, the stakeholders, the people who care, the people who've got skin in the game, can we get you in a room for four days of a week and we're really going to dig in. Can't we just throw some money and you go solve it? I don't want to do design sprints. They are time consuming, but it's just non-negotiable. And as a customer, if you want to do something meaningful, you either have to say, I implicitly trust you. There's no way you're going to get it wrong. I will sign off on whatever. Or you're in there, which is what we want, because it's going to be a co-created solution. We want to make sure that what we do is, yes, pleasant to use, delightful, but really solves that problem. And it's in addition to the stakeholders and the decision makers, I often get raised eyebrows at this, but we're building something for people out in the field. I want one of them here. We're building something for your contact center. No, no, no. I know exactly what the folks on the call center are doing. Like it's, it's fine. We understand it. That's just never the case, by the way. No, I'm going to throw us into that. We're always wrong. The nuance of our feelings and how we manipulate ourselves and give ourselves what we want versus what's actually needed. It just, it happens most of the time. None of us really like highly uncomfortable situations, but when you get in a room and you might have the CFO and a controller and somebody from operations, and then somebody that's still got mud on their boots because they were out in the field on a job site. And I ask a question and the CFO authoritatively answers. And then the person in the field kind of gets this look and maybe looks at the operations person. I, that's not what happens. That's not what we do. And that moment can be uncomfortable, but if you set the stage well for the whole week, that's when you're illuminating the right problem. Let's, to fall in let's talk about being uncomfortable because there are always uncomfortable moments in these exercises. So that's one of them where you have two co-founders running a pretty good sized business and you, we have these structured exercises and we're saying, we're going to answer these questions in one or two creative ways. And they are diametrically opposed on the answers. It's almost like couples therapy sometimes. The other thing is when you take a high aspiration visionary and we want these people in the meetings, but you start to say you are going to be a part of this solution creation and we're going to give you some exercises to do. The minute that pen hits the paper, and they realize going from aspiration to something that can hopefully solve the problem is really hard. We come up against ourselves in that moment. And thankfully, these exercises are designed to draw that out. I don't need you to design a pretty thing. These exercises are going to help us figure out how we're going to solve it. And we're mutually going to own that solution. But I've almost seen CEOs in tears or doing table flips before. I don't wanna scare people off. It's a great character building way to get intimate with how you are solving the problem. Get the thing started the right way. So pressure makes diamonds and all that stuff. We believe it. Also, it's extremely satisfied. If you're in front of these real or real-ish customers and you're getting these answers, it's super powerful. Yeses feel great. Noes may be disappointing, but are valuable really early on. Even if it's a low to medium resolution prototype, it is so exciting for everybody. 
And then you go through the testing, you're like, oh, shoot, our value hypothesis is a little off. And it's an okay outcome when the customer says, we're not going to pursue this because what we're in love with is not the problem we need to be in love with. We're just not interested in going there. I would say that happens 20 to 30% of the time. That's valuable. I tell friends a terrible first date. Cool. You got it out of the way on the first date. Okay. So before we close this out and we talk about the stakes, when do you not need to do a design sprint or design thinking exercises? You have a very clean grip on the problem. You've done your market research. You deeply understand the voice of the customer and regularly calibrate what you're doing based on what you're hearing from the customer. It's not often necessary in those cases. Okay. I'm going to disagree. Okay. If you have a very mature design system, we already know that we're solving the problem and we're using a continuous improvement mindset model, incrementally adding new value. I would say you could benefit from running tight design sprints, but it's more likely that you have really good patterns established and you can achieve more velocity by not running formal design sprints. You're right, because having a really clear understanding of what you're trying to solve, that is only half of it. That's illuminating the right problem. But the idea of how do you get there? What's your path to get there? Right. Something has to manifest and we need to know that it's manifesting in the correct way. You can go see a show. Lasers, it's the spectacle. You got the pyro, the big show, and it's entertaining. And then you see a solo act, an evening with so-and-so. They can't sing. They can't hold it together. They can't hold the songs together. This cuts the noise, cuts the spectacle, cuts all the promise and the helium that can fill these proposals. At the end of it, you've got something to show for it. It's lean, it's mean, it's fast, it can be intense, but if you bring the goods, you can actually go from theory and idea and chatter into something that people can actually interact with, and that is satisfying. Well, let's talk about the stakes. You're gonna get it wrong. No, that's not the way to say it positive. (laughs) But yes, You're going to get it wrong to a degree, no matter what. You might as well learn that as soon as possible. We want to accelerate learning where we're not right so we can be passionate about solving the right problem. You spend more money in the right direction. Yeah. The insights that are going to come from this are going to start coming in faster. More of that lost cash, that lost energy, that lost morale is going to be positively applied to accelerating your success. And it's not crazy to never start to build something that should never be built. Right. And if you get in the habit of these sprints, you get less precious about each individual idea and you quickly vet the bad ones. And then get to move on to the good ones. Remember when the Segway came out? Yeah. So in an interview, when Dean was getting ready to release his amazing new invention and nobody knew what it was. And Dean was straight up saying, this is going to change the world. We thought hover cars, jet boots, teleportation. I mean, honestly, people were like, I don't know. Dean Kamen's amazing. This guy is incredibly successful. And the interviewer said to him, Dean, what is it about you and your inventions that causes you to be so successful. And he said, there are thousands of garage inventors out there diligently working to solve problems that don't exist. Ironically, he launched the Segway, (laughs) solved a problem that didn't really exist. Although it was a cool product, it just wasn't a problem that apparently needed to be solved. I apologize if you have five segues in your garage. No, I'm just imagining the mall cops who <laughs> were really stoked about it. Yeah, they're like, how dare you? <laughs> Tom, thanks for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. If you're listening and you are interested in doing some design thinking, Helpful Human is here for you when it comes to launching the right digital products to solve the real problems that people have. 
Love it. All right. Talk to you again soon.